Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, June 28th, 2021. I am John Podhorts, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me as always, Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And joining us today, Washington Commentary Columnist, AEI Fellow, Founder of the Washington Free Beacon, Matthew Continetti. Hi, Matt. Hi, John. Hi, all. So, so uh, if you guys, uh, so Friday, we, we, we talked a lot about uh, our deep confusion as to what um, uh, Joe Biden had done on Thursday when he had announced with great fanfare uh, the bipartisan deal on infrastructure, and then two hours later said that he was going to veto the very deal that he had uh, just announced with great fanfare unless the larger reconciliation budget were passed also. Thus, as Mark Halpern said in his um, essential newsletter, uh, maybe issuing the first veto threat for a bill that somebody supports in in the history of the presidency. Um, And uh, Matt uh, texted me to say, what you had, you said, I was like, I don't understand what the hell is you going on. You were confused here. in the. I in the was podcast. confused, and you had an explanation. And then let's see whether your explanation can be harmonized with the thing that then happened over the weekend. Go ahead. So, your explanation was well, so because so the state of play on Friday, you were expressing your confusion. Why did Biden do this? What was his strategy? And I was listening and I kept waiting to hear the name Bernie Sanders being mentioned. And I think it was mentioned once uh, in a somewhat unrelated context. But my view is, is that everyone has been focusing on mansion and cinema for good reason about the passage of this bill. What they're ignoring is the brewing revolt on the left. And you saw, some, uh, you saw that um, percolating uh, the other week when Sanders in one of, you know, one of his charming moments that we are all so familiar with said, I'm tired of talking about Joe Manchin. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of him. And I want to have my $6 trillion spending package and we're going to get it through. And it's time. I said, I think he put it in a tweet yesterday, transformative change now. Right. So Biden and the white house and Ron Klain are looking at this and they, and they hear from Pelosi and Schumer who have to deal with um, AOC and the squad and their effective four-seat majority on one hand, and uh, Schumer and uh, Sanders on the other. Uh, and they said, look, the only way you're going to appease the left is if you say that these bills need to be passed together. And since so much of Biden's presidency to date has been about exactly that, appeasing the left, he said in the, in the second event on Thursday, I'm only passing them if I pass them together not realizing that that would jeopardize the deal that he had just said, one of the greatest moments in uh, American democracy in the last decade. Okay, so. Can we briefly though, before we move on from that, because in yeah. the in the moments after that happened, we recorded this podcast, we were befuddled. And I think everyone was befuddled if they were being truly honest with you. But then after we finished recording, this conventional wisdom sort of congealed with the rapidity that only Twitter facilitates around the notion that Republicans knew this was the deal. You knew it. Everybody knew it, didn't you? And it's just that Joe Biden said it out loud. That, that was spin it. number one. 
That was, oh, there was a second one. I just remember that one. I that was, no, well, spin number two was the statement on Saturday. So spin right. number one from the White House was, oh, everyone knew this was going to be the case, you silly Republicans. Why are you so angry? This We've said this all the time. And that's what Saki said in her press conference on Friday, right? Oh, you this is always the that's pre That's Press Secretary Jen Psaki. Right. Yeah. And that didn't work. So that didn't work. So Cassidy, Romney, everyone, they're still saying, this is horrible. What are you doing? We're not going to, the only way that we could uh, get this through or just rationalize it is, to, is if to say that the two bills are separate from one another, that we can have a deal on infrastructure, and then we're going to try to stop the big reconciliation bill. Just think of the logic behind that first spin, though. It's that the idea was that Republicans needed cover from Democrats so that they could completely cave on $6 trillion worth of spending. And Democrats were more than inclined to give Republicans that cover. So why don't you just take this beneficence that we're giving to you so you look like complete fools and cowards? Okay, so basically, I wanna get back to the very simple question, which is what happened on Thursday in that two hour gap? And Matt, you have a very rational explanation for what happened, that there's a, there's a, there's a specific political strategy that is intended to make sure that Biden doesn't get uh, his knees cut out, you know, doesn't get cut out from under him uh, by his left. Um, fine. I, I'm not even saying that's, that's not true. Um, what I do think, however, and then Noah brings up an important thing, which is this notion that it's the Republicans who are being cynical by saying, well, we agreed to this infrastructure bill, but we sure didn't agree to the other bill. And uh, if he's going to tie them, then we have to vote against both of them if they're going to be tied. And then it's like, oh, the Republicans are so cynical. Like, it was like the opposite of cynicism. It was like they were saying, oh my God, we were a, we were a bunch of dupes and rubes. We're so stupid. It was like, you know, it was like the guy in uh, Glengarry Glen Ross who has to come back and say, my wife says I can't buy the crappy apartment that you wanna, you know, the, the crappy real estate deal that you've made with me because I'm, I'm an idiot, I, the, the deal stinks. And they, you know, desperately have to try to talk him back into the deal. They and the guy is self-hating and, you know, and and feels weak and stupid. They weren't being cynical. They were being like, oh, you know, I, oh my God, I just bought the lemon of the century. I stood there with Biden giving him a big press op on his bipartisanship, and he's made me look like a fool. And the first impulse of of sort of liberal repertorial Twitter, which means that the fact that it was also group minded means that this was how they were sort of pre-programmed or themselves pre-programmed to, to think this is, okay, what, what, what are the Republicans up to here? I mean, come on, like they're, they're just, I mean, whatever they are, they acted in bad faith. It was like the opposite of that. They were operating in like good naive faith and then got the, and then got their hats handed to them and that line could have stood if Biden hadn't come out on Saturday and said, oops, I screwed up. So like, not only did Biden, Biden uh, do what he did to sort of shore up the left, but it forced him to kind of screw his apologists in the media who had already come up with a ready explanation for why 
what he did was a brilliant play that the Republicans knew he was going to play. Matt, you were. I th- you know, just two things. I think the, the big slip up wasn't so much Biden at the second event Thursday saying that the bills are in tandem. It was him saying, I'm not going to sign the deal unless I get the other deal. And that, that I think, maybe even people in the White House were like, what are you saying? What is this? And it, it, he's, he was parroting what Schumer and Pelosi were telling their uh, caucus to, in order to appease the left. But that, that threatened to blow up the deal. So the reason he had to walk back on Saturday was the spin, what I called spin number one uh, uh, from, the, from the liberal media. That wasn't good. I mean, fine. That might, that might soothe their consciences, uh, but it, the deal was going to fall apart. I mean, there, there was no way that the Republicans were going to vote for the deal based on that spin or whatever the justification was. So that meant that in order for, as they're going to three alarm fire at the White House over the past 72 hours, or from Thursday to Saturday, rather, that meant that finally he had to release spin number two, which was kind of a mixture of, well, I've always believed that the two bills are going to come together, but I didn't mean to suggest that I'm not going to sign the one without the other. And that seems to have been enough to save the infrastructure deal for now, for this week. Well, right, because Oops, I Did It Again should be the theme song to the Biden administration on any major issue. He did this about calling the border a crisis and they walk it back. He says something, they walk it back, they walk it back. And I do think if this happened, you know, this happens to every president, every administration occasionally on on an issue like this. But it's a consistent feature, not a bug of the Biden administration at this point. Okay. I, I do Mitch think McConnell, this, I'm sorry. Hey, go. Hey, I, go I, I do think this cost him a bit uh, this time around. I don't. Um, I don't mean. Um, interestingly, uh, given all his sort of like ideological defensiveness on both sides, I don't know that it cost him ideologically, but um, it, it just, just the um, the general projection of his um, looking so thoroughly irresolute and um, all over the place. Um, it got a lot more coverage this time around because it was just so immediately on its face baffling. Um, and and that he walked because he, he says, I didn't mean to suggest he didn't suggest he he flatly stated that that he wouldn't sign one without the other and then went back. Um, I think I think he took a real hit here in terms of like, you know, everyone saying, well, what exactly is going on uh, in, in this White House? And we're not done yet. He's this this debacle, I don't think, is not yet done unfolding. Mitch McConnell is now calling on uh, Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi both to publicly do what Joe Biden did, walk back these threats, reaffirm their commitment to the fact that these two bills are completely uh, on separate tracks, and he might get it. I mean, Joe Biden's mistake here might not be yet done yielding uh, concessions from from Democrats, drawing blood from Democrats. So it's it's it might be a pretty big, big boo-boo. So for the historical analogy crowd that got all excited by the prospect of Biden being FDR or LBJ, there has always been this other question, which is if he's an unsuccessful president, then the analog is Jimmy Carter, right? That's the, that would be the classic, the one-term Democratic president you don't want to emulate would be Jimmy Carter. The Carter story, though, Carter, he, Biden is the ultimate insider, right? I mean, he's been in Washington since 1972. Um, and, you know, he's been, a, he's been a major player in American public life. That means now for 49 years. 
uh, Carter was the ultimate outsider. You know, he was the governor of Georgia. He ran as an outsider. He was the guy who wasn't stained by the horrible politics of the Watergate period. But um, his problem politically uh, wasn't the Republican Party, it was the Democratic Party. And it was that he veered sharply to the left, particularly on foreign policy. He did not have good relationships with people on Capitol Hill. And when things began to go south for him, it was when Democrats withdrew their support from him, from his you know, uh, m most deeply desired things, most importantly, the SALT II Treaty, uh, which, you know, needed 67 votes for passage and which he was never even able to bring to a vote in the Senate, because even though the polls said two thirds of the public supported it, the more conservative Democrats said, you are, you know, I am, it's enough of this already, you know, I don't know what the hell you're doing. Biden is in office with this, as we keep saying, no majority in the Senate and four or five seat majority in the House with an insanely ambitious, preposterously ambitious agenda, fiscally, ideologically, practically. And, uh, and what he got at the, at the beginning of the year was a very big spending bill dealing with a very specific circumstance, which was the coronavirus economic emergency. And they are now, they are now continuing to run on these weird fumes from the idea that arose from the, that circumstance and the fact that they unexpectedly won the two Senate seats in Georgia. So that Bernie Sanders and AOC are sitting there saying, you got to pass me a $6 trillion spending bill. He is not going to get a $6 trillion spending bill. I mean, among other things, yeah. But if they torpedo it, the left torpedoes it, his administration is over. Like that is, that's where, you know, if he cannot in the first year of his presidency hold Democrats together to pass the legislation that he as the leader of the party wants, uh, his, he is in very, very bad political shape going forward. But if he pushes this agenda, he'll lose four or five Democratic seats in the House. There, I mean, there are already two or three Democratic congressmen who are saying, I'm not going to, it's not mansion and cinema. Pelosi can't assure, Pelosi's worried about AOC. She's got to worry about like the very people who are like are are fighting against headwinds to stay in Congress in 2022 to hold her majority? He is in a very interesting political conundrum here because they're focusing in the White House on the left. They've got they've got whatever small but serious band of moderates exists in the House, who are the mansions and cinemas of the House. They've got to worry about on the other side, but nobody is giving any of those people any attention. Well, Rochetti is. So this is fast. You know, the, the White House doesn't really leak. So you can only get a sense of what's going on at moments of rupture like this. Right. But if you pay attention to uh, which of Biden's deputies is in charge of which coalition, it's very interesting. Ron Klain, the chief of staff, is clearly the representative of MSNBC in the White House. And he has he's dealing with the left and he brings in the left for meetings and he's always appeasing the left on Twitter. 
the, uh, the less well-known Steve Rochetti, who's also been with Biden forever, he clearly was superintending this deal. So he's the guy, it seems to me, that they've deputized to deal with the center and even the right. Um, and at moments like this, Biden has to walk this tightrope, as you as you laid out, between the Rochettes and the Claims and, and the different constituencies that we represent. I just one note on Carter, though. I think the parallel, you know, one lesson of the last four years is how much personality matters. And Carter's personality is very different from Biden's, I think, right? I mean, Carter was so um, self-righteous and believed that somehow, you know, by going to Camp David and bringing everyone there, he was going to light the fire. That would be the spiritual renewal of the nation with his malaise speech. That's not Biden. Biden fundamentally just wants everyone to get, you know, get the deal. He wants to be liked. He has these crazies that he has to uh, appease, but he's also kind of become more woke, I think, because he spends a lot of time with his grandkids. Um, so he kind of, you know, he's down with the youth, you know, um, but he understands that, you know, he's, he knows McConnell, he knows Lindsey Graham, he's been around forever. He knows those people too. I don't think it's too late for this, for either package. Um, uh, but it, what, what the last week showed was just how, um, how careful they have to be, how they have to continually walk on eggshells to get it through. Because, you know, at the end of the day, is Sanders really going to torpedo $3 trillion in new spending if that's what Biden or, or Manchin um, bargain them down to? I, I somehow doubt it. He'll, he'll you know, issue saying, uh, you know, a lament saying, well, we need to do more, but this is the best I have. But you're absolutely right. If he were to say, you know, enough of this, um, then that, and, and Biden doesn't get this major legislative initiative done in his first year, uh, his presidency is in real trouble. I just think it's like whom the gods destroy, they would they first make mad. Uh, if, if that's right, then winning the two Georgia seats was the gods seeking to destroy Biden because the Democrats are dealing with a political, a set of political circumstances that are not what they first appeared to be to them. Um, and had they not won those seats or had they won one and not the other or something, the entire year would have unfolded in a wildly different fact. I don't know how it would have unfolded. I don't really understand, you know, running the counterfactual. Uh, but you know, it wouldn't have been this, you know, you know, it wouldn't have been, all right, well, let's, you know, seize the bull by the horns. You remember the last time there was a 50-50 Senate uh, in 2000, 2001, George W. Bush passed a gigantic piece of legislation that was more supported by Democrats than Republicans. That was no child left behind. He used Ted Kennedy to get him 60 votes uh, because that was a bill more palatable to liberals than it was to conservatives. That's how you do it if you're actually facing the political reality that you don't have that much runway or running room or anything like that. But the but the sort of the hyper-partisanship that unfolded over the following 20 years um, has clearly made that impossible or, 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 or much less possible and led to this, you know, totally self-created debate. Like, I think the problem with Matt, with your, your theory is uh, that you're, you're saying that they had a rational set of 
needs on Thursday, which was that they needed to somehow placate the angry left, but that Biden spoke went, went one sentence too far. But I, I don't know. I don't know what, why he needed to placate the angry left. The play in this bill was solely, look, we can get something done in Washington. Not we can get something done in Washington, and I can be a lunatic ideologue, you know, aligning with my own lunatic ideologues in my own party. You don't have to peddle the same message the same day. Um, so either that was Biden, as you know, like as going up, you know, like like saying the thing, saying the sentence that he shouldn't have said, or they really don't quite know. They are. They don't know where they are. They don't know their their own understanding of their own political circumstances is is much less clear to them than we realize because uh, you know they don't have the feel. For, I keep saying we all say this. Like I don't have the feel for the other side that Republicans and conservatives sort of have for liberals because their sense of where the right is is a very caricatured sense often. And they don't really understand it, and they don't know how to co-opt it, and they don't know what to say, what vocabulary language to use, and so they're all operating within their own bubble. And Biden, who was supposed to be the creature outside the bubble, turns out that he still he more than anybody else is living within the bubble. Maybe it's his grandchildren. Maybe what he sees as he opens his mouth is his grandchildren getting angry at him. Well, and also, you know for whatever reason, the Democrats decided to put the socialist in charge of the budget committee in the Senate, which yeah. is, I mean, amazing. I mean, just think if there had been a more, you know, Gene Shaheen was chair chair of the, of the budget committee in the Senate, this would all look very different. But the fact that Sanders is there and he's one of the most important, but he's yeah. going to write the budget resolution this coming week and he's going to write it for not forget about Manchin or forget about Biden. It will be Sanders's agenda that he's, he's yeah. apparently he's stuffing immigration reform in there. He's including the PRO Act, which, which nullify right to work nationwide. Yeah. You know, I mean, and he's doing it because one, he's an ideologue and a red. I mean, two, this ethic of um, we're going to lose next year anyway. So we might as well go for broke this year is very much, I think, ingrained in the Democratic personality right now. This is an important point that we don't raise enough. I, I've seen it, uh, particularly in the last few weeks, AOC repeating it several times on uh, in media appearances and other members of the squad saying, we only have a little bit of time. There's only a little time left, which, which has both an apocalyptic resonance for their base, but also sort of a horrifying and, and uh, uh, lack of strategy long term because if they assume they're going to lose the election they're already signaling that their agenda is more radical than Americans want so we're going to ram it through and meanwhile their president keeps saying you know Biden keeps saying look I want to I want to deal I want to make deals so I think that watching that rhetoric in the next few weeks you'll see more of it certainly from the left but if, if it starts to infect the more moderate democratic uh, members of congress that that'll be a signal that they really are going to just try to ram through whatever they can Okay, I want to talk about Matt's piece in the July-August commentary in a second, but first I want to talk to you about our, our new advertiser, Aura. Uh, the way you use the internet has changed dramatically over the last decade, but security tools have mostly stayed the same. Aura com provides complete digital security to help you protect your online accounts, finances, devices, and more all 
in one easy to use app. It provides digital security protection to keep your online finances, personal information and tech safe from online threats, all in one protection from identity theft, financial fraud, malware scam sites, and so much more. With Aura, you'll get alerted to fraud and threats fast. Like if your online accounts or passwords were leaked online, or if someone tries to open a bank account in your name, Aura is easy to set up. All plans come with $1 million in identity theft insurance to help recover your stolen funds and experienced US-based customer support that's got your back. Aura is a new type of security service that protects all of your online information and devices with one simple subscription with an easy online dashboard and alert sent straight to your phone. Aura keeps you in control and guides you through solving any issues. And right now, Aura has a limited time offer for our listeners to get early access and three free months when you visit aura.com slash commentary. Go to aura.com slash commentary to get access before anyone else and three months for free for a limited time. That's aura.com slash commentary. So Matt, you have a piece in the July-August issue of commentary called Mansion Goes Rogue, um, which doesn't even really deal with the budgetary questions. You're really more dealing with the question of the institutional history of the Senate and the question of whether or not, which is really budgetary ultimately, whether or not Manchin, Joe Manchin, the senator from West Virginia, Democratic senator from West Virginia, um, would or would not relent and allow uh, and vote for the ending of the filibuster. Um, and uh, the point, part of the point you're making here is that um, uh, Manchin is a classic figure in Washington politics. He is a maverick, uh, the guy who uh, is not governed by the uh, rules and strictures of his own party, but has his own internal barometer or a very specific set of circumstances relating to the state and the politics of the state he comes from. And usually, uh, or in recent history, mavericks, uh, the press loves mavericks. But the press doesn't love Manchin, does it? No, they don't. And it's hilarious. I, I just kind of compared the uh, press coverage of um, John McCain's no vote on the Obamacare repeal in the summer of 2017, where uh, McCain was lauded as a national hero for standing up uh, to Trump and thwarting the Republican attempt to repeal uh, Obamacare replacement to come later um, with the coverage of Manchin's uh, institutional stance toward the filibuster, um, where, uh, where in fact, Manchin is kind of just a, um, a stand-in for probably a half a dozen Democratic senators who don't want to jettison the filibuster, but Biden is, the, but rather Manchin is their heat shield. He's out there, uh, and cinema too, saying, no, we're not going to, we need the filibuster for various reasons. We're going to stick with it. And just, he has been um, hounded hounded uh not not just by the liberal opinion press but by actual supposed reporters he has travels around the capital with this pack of uh junior reporters following him saying what about the filibuster what about the filibuster over and over and over again you know and eventually led him to snap he said what you know can't you ask another question um so yeah so the fact that he is standing in the way of this transformative agenda, the most radical parts of this transformative agenda may, has made him a maverick who is, for the first time in a long time, despised by the Washington <laughs> press corps, which really, you know, which truly believes that, um, uh, you know, that the Sanders agenda won the presidency in 2020, despite all evidence to the contrary. 
Um, you know, it, we face this fantastic conundrum. So Christine's talking about how AOC is saying we only have a short amount of time because we're going to lose in 2022. Let's assume that that loss in 2022 doesn't just mean the House, which I think it, you know, is, is what she's thinking of, right? Because there's a 5C majority. The net, the average net loss of the party in power in a midterm election is 26 seats. So um, uh, if that uh, happens, you know, I mean, even if the, the Democrats stage a fantastic rally of support in 21 and 22, I mean, they are facing an almost insuperable challenge to keep the House. If they can limit the damage to seven seats, they still lose the House, you know, based on, on, on pre. But uh, let's assume pretty much that they're going to lose the Senate. Uh, this is the, they need the filibuster. Like they, they don't really need the filibuster with the Democratic president because I guess he can use the veto would function similar to the filibuster. But our Republicans then would be in a position with the House and the Senate to pass bills at will and then force and force uh, Bush, uh, Bush, why did I say Bush? I was thinking weirdly of 91, 92 when the situation was reversed, uh, you know, to, to, to veto everything that they, they throw at him, at, at Biden. Um, like this is short-term thinking of a really demented fashion, like, they only have 14 or 15 months in which they could play with the filibuster ended to then hand the power of 51 vote majority passing everything in the Senate to the Republicans to make to put Biden in, a, in an almost intolerably painful position for 23 and 24. And then, of course, what if they win? What if them? What if, uh, you know, you could then have a situation which. Republicans will be able to pass everything at will in 2025. And the first thing they'll do is reverse everything that Democrats did in 2021 and 2022, and then move onward to whatever agenda they want. This is one of the perverse consequences of the democracy is dying rhetoric, right? That the Democrats have, and of course, conversely, Republicans have their own version of this, but just to speak to the left and the Democrats for a second, you know, they, they really believe that if they don't do these major structural reforms and the filibuster, abolish the electoral college, admit new states, pack the Supreme Court, then the game is over. Democracy is done. And as one of their smartest election analysts, David Shore, um, has said, you don't do these things and Republicans are going to be in power for the next decade. Uh, that's just, it's just silly in my view. Of course, you know, we're a 50-50 nation. We go back and forth. I've lived through every possible permutation of government. Um, we're good. That's pattern. There's no reason to think that pattern is going to stop unless you believe that democracy is doomed because of what re Republicans are up to in the states. And um, and so that makes you uh, adopt this apocalyptic mindset that Christine was describing. Yeah, but um, <clears throat> maybe two weeks ago, I would have said that progressives and Democrats really genuinely, honestly, in the, the heart of hearts, believed that voter identification was racist. They say it all the time. They enact policies to that effect. They oppose anything that resembles the, the uh, Im implementation of a, of a voter ID requirement, both in person and for absentees. And then Joe Manchin had this compromise that kind of could push through this one bill and all that went away. 
just went away overnight because it was politically advantageous to do so. So they didn't really believe it. They talked themselves into believing it. They certainly said as much, both in public and in private, but they never really believed it. So perhaps, just possibly, they have created the conditions in their head that lead them to really genuinely say they believe this and talk themselves into believing it. But when it becomes politically advantageous to ditch it, they'll ditch it because it's well, not politicians, a principle. Politicians may ditch it, but I, I mean, I, this is all, you know, anecdote, but um, ordinary Democrats believe it. Like I, there is no question that- Well, the ordinary line, progressives, poll no, no, after no, no, poll no. after poll suggests voter identification is popular. I'm not talking about voter ID. Divide. I'm talking about what Matt, the, the, the democracy is dying and we need to, we need to do, 18 different things because Republicans are going to set up some form of populist, Trumpian, neo-fascist, you know, uh, authoritarianism uh, in, in their wake. Um, that has been a wildly successful set of arguments among a certain class of, of, of people. Um, and it, it gives uh, that's sort of like rank and file Democrats to some extent. Like, here's what they don't like, in my, my experience. A lot of them don't actually like wokeness. They don't like it. We know this about sort of like, you know, uh, middle-aged African-American voters, and they don't like wokeness. And they don't like, uh, you know, sort of like the pushing of a radical social agenda. But if you say to them, the Republicans are trying to steal, you know, are trying to sort of fix the rules to enshrine themselves in power everywhere, that they have no difficulty believing and believing needs to be uh, counteracted. And you know, part of the problem here is that the argument against it is an argument, um, how do you say this? Like, it's too sophisticated an argument. Like ultimately, if you wanna say, you don't do away with the electoral college, you don't do away with the filibuster, you don't do away with certain things that make voting not simply something like going into a 7-Eleven and buying a bottle of water when it's 95 degrees. You have to start explaining, no, America's not a democracy, it's a republic. No, we have, the, 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 the founders explicitly set up the Senate uh, as a bulwark against direct democracy. Its structure exists as a, as a, you know, as a check against the mob. Uh, the filibuster inside the Senate is a check against even the possibility of the mobs getting control of the Senate, blah, 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 blah. Like, so you have to get into kind of sophisticated arguments that are too complicated for that kind of thing. But I just know so many people who buy it. And so they can kind of sacrifice little bits and pieces of it, including voter ID, without sacrificing the power of that argument among Democrats who genuinely seem now to openly dislike Republicans the way Republicans now seem openly to dislike Democrats. But it's but it's a kind of the, the tone of that is I agree with you. And I actually I have a, I have some very partisan Democratic friends who uh, get enraged when the, for example, the critical race theory issue comes up because it is not an existential threat. They're like, what about climate change? What about fascist Trumpian, et cetera, et cetera. The, the kind of baseline argument among very politically engaged partisan Democrats right now is all existential threat all the time. It's very appealing. You can you can jettison details here and there about it, an argument to, to make 
perhaps a political point. Compromise is not really part of this language. Existential threats allow for the for the marination in, in abstract language and concepts. It's, it's why the go-to, um, when even Democratic leaders like Nancy Pelosi, who know better, they'll go to the structural racism, white supremacy language. This is all a signal of these existential threats that I think are now how they want to view the world. And as they see it, logically, as, an, as a response to what the threat they thought Trump posed with his make America great again rhetoric, with his, you know, proto-fascist rhetoric. So I think in their minds, it, it, it's a sensible response to a, to to what Trump brought into political culture, but they have to let, they're not letting it go now that Trump has exited the stage. You know, even if, if, even if they're um, sort of doing, doing this to respond to what I, I think, I agree with John and Christine here that, you know, there are many sort of average American Democrats who, who believe in the, in the, you know, existential threat and the threat to our democracy stuff. Um, nonetheless, the Democrats seem to be blowing it strategically and tactically at every turn, right? I mean, that, that, that's, what, that's where this whole conversation is kind of, is kind of headed. So it's not um, somehow the right thing or enough of the right thing to do to, to um, appease the average liberal, liberals on this point. Well, what Christine is describing is not an argument per se, but an affect, right? It's just a, it's sort of a, just a emotional tick and a tone that you strike. A posture, yeah. Yes. A posture, right. And so that's sort of risks, you know, the Bill Hicks bit, the old Bill Hicks bit that I reference all the time, uh, turn on your television, it's war, death, AIDS, famine. And you open the window and it's birds chirping and it's placid and pleasant. So the, the affect doesn't really comport with what average people are seeing on these existential crises, the existential crisis of climate change, the existential crisis of racism, structural inequality, economic inequality, what have you. It's just not visible to people. And after a certain point, if you keep that tone, that affect up, you start to sound like a crank. I don't know, because Republicans have their own version of it. So I, I'm not sure that's Oh, no, right. it's, it's no. universal. It's, the, right. the, the, the dramaturgy of politics today is to be the maximum emotional peak at all moments, at all times, in every issue. Right. And then we have the counterfactual, or not the, I mean, the, the counterpoise argument would be that in 2020, Americans had a choice between the hysterical lunatic, uh, you know, apocalyptic millenarian president who uh, is like, if you don't vote for me, you know, everything is, and, and the guy was like, oh, come off it, man. Will you just shut up? You know, I'm old, I'm tired, make me president because I'm just gonna let you, I'm gonna free you people from this, from this lunatic. Listen to him. Can you stand it anymore? Right, that, that makes your argument for you, but it doesn't make, but when we're talking about like specific pieces of legislation and the behavior of the, you know, the House and the Senate, which really do, are, you know, are, are, are governed much more, you know, remember the structure back to the anti-democratic nature of, you know, the Constitution that um, you have these three different bodies, right? The House is there to represent local interests, 435 representatives uh, of, you know, local we're supposed to come to Washington to say what their districts need. Senates, two people from each state to say what their state needs. And then there's this one guy that everybody votes for who can, who can talk about what the nation needs. And they're supposed to be in conflict. That's what, if they didn't have to be in conflict, you wouldn't need three bodies, right? I mean, you wouldn't need, and then of course the Supreme Court that says what they do together 
someone better check to make sure that the things these three bodies agree to doesn't go too far either. So, um, so it, if you if you look at it that way, Biden is the perfect representative, you know, of the national mood of people saying, I, I just can't take this, like living screaming, you know, with a sort of a, someone screaming out the window, like Howard Beale, 365 days a year. But the but the motivations of the other elected officials in Washington uh, are that, and they do have to listen to the more you know hysterical voices because their midterm their non presidential year elections are much less heavily voted in and uh, and they gotta and and they are much more affected by the partisans who scream than the president needs to be. Right. I mean, that's just that's just a that's just a fact of life. And so, you know, I know yeah, you're always making the argument that people see sweet reason. And I think maybe in the broadest brush, they do. But when you folk when you drill down on certain issues, people are much more the issues are much more driven by the loudest voices in the room. OK, let me talk to you about our great friends at the X chair. Can your office chair give you a massage while you're sitting at your desk? I'll bet not, but mine can. Can your office chair warm your back on cold mornings or cool you off on hot days? I bet it can't, but mine can. I don't have any old name, old no-name office chair. I have an X chair. I've been telling you about it. I love it. And I've never had an office chair that looks or feels so amazing in my entire life. Secret, dynamic, variable lumbar support, which offers unbelievable lumbar support to your lower back. And now they're introducing Elamax, featuring cooling, heat, and massage therapy uh, directly to your core. It increases blood flow, helps muscle recovery, and gives you energy. Even four different massage modes and fast warming heat technology for therapy to your sore back. You won't believe the extra difference until you feel it. It's time to trade in your old uncomfortable office chair and trade up to an X chair. X chair prices are going up on July 11th. That's just a couple of weeks from now. For the first time in two years, beat the price increase. Go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's a letter X, the word chair, commentary.com, or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR to save $100 off your order. 10 times $10. X-CHAIR has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. Go to xchaircommentary.com now and use code XWheels for free XWheel blade casters, xchaircommentary.com. Guys, uh, so we've now seen this report that Marco Rubio forced the release of uh, classified intelligence report on 144 sightings over the last 17 years of craft in the sky that are behaving in ways that nobody that seemed to defy our understanding of contemporary uh, physics and physical activity and that, uh, and that have no uh, explanation in everything that we understand. Uh, so what is this? Uh, so here's what I wanted to say to you guys. So this has now been, uh, everyone's calling this the, you know, this is proof that there are aliens. Uh, in only one case could they say that it was probably some kind of a weather errant weather balloon. So it's either aliens or it's we have technology we don't know about that other parts of the government don't know about. Or it's other countries have technology so advanced that we don't understand it, which seems to fly in the face of what we know about the technology that other countries do have. 
or uh, it's on a, it's other, and that's everyone saying that this is aliens. And I now want to go and ask you the following question: If this were any other time in history, and something like this happened, would the presumption be that it was people from outer space, or would the presumption be that we were seeing angels and demons in the sky? Angels and demons. Very easy. Very easy to answer. Okay. Why 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 don't we think this now? Because religion no longer has the hold on on certainly the opinion forming classes that it once did, and for and for most other people, it, it's not the same. The de facto explanation is has to be related to some type of pseudo scientific uh, story, and so there you have to have something like like aliens, which have been. Bit, what's interesting to me is um, the last big extraterrestrial blip right in the in the late 70s and 80s and you know that this is with the ufo abductions that we that's gone in the age of these of cell phone cameras and um facebook lives you can't have that anymore right so now it's moved to the apparitions in the skies some of which appear on the video recording devices of these jets operating at high speed but um it, we still have the reflexive attitude toward toward it that it must be uh, extraterrestrial. Oh, you said that was the last. That wasn't the last. What was the last? The last one? was while Bill Clinton and Dick Morris both apparently had women futzing around with them. They were on the phone, and Clinton says to Dick Morris. Hey, there's life on Mars. You don't even. You guys don't even remember. No, this. no. Well, that was an actual NASA thing, though. That I know, wasn't. That I know, wasn't a I know. flying saucer. No, but I'm saying that was the last time, and it's kind of yeah. got buried in the fact. Well, we that never Dick figured Morris, it out. Dick I remember Morris that. had someone licking his toes, and that's what we focused on was Dick Morris licking his toes. <laughs> that's all I'm saying. Okay, that but the the demons is the explanation. Was a, okay. <laughs> that's demonic possession. No, but there. Okay, here's another thing though. Why? Why was the go-to aliens? Right. It, it, I do think that there's a slightly depressing uh, explanation for why we didn't think that humanity hadn't advanced at some point to allow for some sort of time travel, right? Like that used to be like, we're smart enough to have figured out how to like, you know, the space-time continuum. I mean, this is very sci-fi. I, I basically have been watching Loki with one of my sons. So this is on my mind, but the idea, but, but there, the idea that only another uh, species could come up with something sophisticated enough to do that it kind of makes me sad. Like, why couldn't it be us of the future coming back to do something here? So there is, I mean, I have a few thoughts about this. First is that, <clears throat> you know, this has happened sort of as the result of about, you know, two years worth of footage coming out. Some of it's sort of naval footage um, of these craft that are either near uh, aircraft or near boats. Um, I In the footage, I'm, I, for me, it's never quite revelatory. I don't know if you guys agree. But I never, I never look, look at it and say, "Wow, that's got to be aliens." You know, I mean, I, I, I accept that the the analyses um, suggest that it that these these dots and blips and and balls are doing things in the sky that we can't explain. But it doesn't really come off that way in, the, in a dramatic fashion at all. Um, so I, so to me, if I feel like there's a bit of a runaway <clears throat> kind of um, hysteria about this. Um, but the other point is, there is um, a very significant 
sector of the UFO theorists um, movement that believes in things like um, interdimensional uh, beings, right? Um, uh, or sort of um, uh, beings that are sort of manifested as the result of uh, human will or, or, you know, all sorts of sort of quasi-religious um, explanations that are nonetheless under the umbrella of uh, ufology, as they say. Uh, the, the, there's a French guy, Jacques Vallée, who's really been like sort of the champion of this stuff. And in fact, he has a, he wrote a whole history of, you know, images in the sky dating back from the ancient times to the present, making the argument that there is, <clears throat> that there is a consistent phenomenon here. Um, so they can- but The consistent phenomenon is epiphenomenal, right? Is that the conclusion well, that he's drawing? Epiphenomenal in the sense that, that it sort of, it's not attached to uh, physical phenomena as, as we, as we see it, yeah, as we understand. Okay, it could leave the possibility of <clears throat> more things in heaven and earth that are dreamt of in my philosophy. And also that this is just human beings attributing patterns, pattern-seeking animals. Well, th what's different things that about don't this, have a pattern. Right, but th that's what th what's different about this is the fact that it has this classified imprimatur that these are things that have been investigated by the by advanced by the most advanced technology that we have not by cell phone cameras but by uh you know taken and then studied through you know these computers that have computing power the likes of which we haven't seen and photographic evidence and all of this and that the the things that have had these pictures taken of them appear to behave in ways that using this technology do not comport with what we know about contemporary physics, that they that there are things that appear to have no uh, propulsive that are moving in a way that does not comport with how we understand things to move, right? Uh, they do not, uh, they do not bend the air, they do not create wakes, they do not, they just move. Uh, how they know this, I don't know, because we don't know what technology is being used well, to look at them. But maybe so they, they don't know it, John. I mean, that's right. the thing. It's like, well, that's you're assuming right. that they have in the bowels of a Pentagon, this, the HAL 9000 that they say, you know, <laughs> look at this footage, HAL, yeah. and tell us what it can it be and how yeah. it comes back. I don't know, Dave, right? I mean, right. yeah, it could just be that a bunch of bureaucrats sitting in a sub office in one of the, in the C ring, and they look at the video and they go, beats me. Absolutely. So, but here's, here's what I, here's when you say, and I think this is what, what, what Abe was getting at. When you say there are these things and we don't understand them, uh, you call them aliens instead of, as I say, like in previous times, fitting them into the cosmology that we have understood it to be the world's cosmology from time immemorial, which is an essentially religious understanding that there are things that are supernatural, supernatural above nature that can change nature or violate nature or, or, or as in the case of say Jewish, you know, the uh, Rabbi Soloveitchik's thinking that God allows nature to function rationally, that that is a choice that has been made supernaturally, but that obviously by will, he can, he can interrupt it and do whatever it is that he can do. And that we have advanced to a high enough point of uh, technological competence 
that we can start seeing what the Supreme Court might have called the penumbras and emanations of the supernatural um, and what they are and where they come from and what they will be. That those are invisible to us. But what we what we have been told for our entire lives by materialist thinkers is that anybody who says that the divine exists is believing in some childish fantasy of an all-powerful uh, embracing father or a loving universe and all this. And we just have to understand that we're all just computers and that, and that there is no, and that all these, everything that happened happened through a freak of, of natural evolution and all of that. And to think anything otherwise is to be a dupe and a rube and an, and an, and an idiot and, 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 uh, and something like that. And looking at all this and hearing about all this, what does this say? This says, we don't have any idea what is going on up there. We don't know. And I was saying to you guys before, the most important discovery in human history may have happened in the last two or three years. And we just like went along as though it, it didn't mean anything, which is when, they, when they, they claimed to have discovered the Higgs boson, which was a theory, which is a, the Higgs boson is the thing that incepts matter out of nothing. It is the creation of something out of nothing. That's why people call it the God particle. This happened in 2017 and we're still walking around as though we didn't discover something that might actually be proof of the existence of the divine. Just as when we get a report like this and it comes out, as I say, under other circumstances, this would be seen as the proof of the existence of the divine. And instead, all anybody in this country, which has been watching science fiction movies since HAL 9000 in 1968 can think is that it's aliens and it's the close encounters are gonna come out of a ship and they're gonna play music and beam it into our heads. And then they're, they're gonna sign language with each other. And it's all, and they're, they're so nice and everything is so wonderful, or they're gonna land they're going to go over the White House and shoot a beam down and blow up the White House like an Independence Day. And the fact that something desperately more profound than that might be happening, the fact that that's the fifth thing on our agenda, it just speaks to some real weirdness in, in American existence. But, you know, I, I also want to say on this, you know, point about how, uh, you know, the, the materialist worldview has, you know, framed it such that only a rube would believe in something divine or, or transcendent or, or spiritual at this point, um, given the lack of evidence and, and all the rest of it. Um, how gullible might one have to be to, to believe in aliens based on a, a dozen grainy videotapes that don't show anything that looks much different from a remote control drone flying around? Right. Well, or that so, there is, you know, divinity in, you know, the, the the banal discovery of Higgs boson and every discovery in science that, you know, makes the that which was uh, unthinkable and phenomenal become something that's perfectly explicable and within the realm of physics, just as there's divinity in infrared glare, making an object appear to spin at rates that physics don't allow. Well, well I, except I don't, I don't, I don't think these. I, see, the thing about the major scientific discoveries is, I think they they tend not to make things more explicable. They tend to make them less explicable. Right, and I think that's a very important point because look, we published 
we published a couple, three very difficult pieces in, in, in commentary. Difficult in the sense that they are, they were, they're, they're, they're next level intellectual exercises that you really have to kind of pour through. One was by the physicist Jeremy England called The Partly Predictable World. We published that in 2015, I think. Um, David Galernter wrote a piece about consciousness. Abe, do you remember the name of that piece? I can't remember the name of it right now. Um, like the stream of the, clo the, clo mind, the, the right? closing of the scientific mind. The closing of the yeah. scientific mind that said that, you know, as we as we get ever closer to understanding the absolute miraculous nature of human existence, uh, that the that the the materialists, what they have to do is say things like we're computers. Everything that we know that makes us human is an illusion, love, free will, all that stuff, uh, because we're actually just machines that were programmed by nothing, just by freaks of nature. Uh, Ethan Siegel wrote a piece about whether we're alone in the universe that sort of deals with the actual mathematical evidence that would suggest that the kind of conditions that make life possible on Earth are, in fact, in are, are are more likely to be induplicable than they are to be duplicable, despite the infinite nature of the universe. And I mean, part of the point here is that um, as you get to somebody saying, you know, which is what the which is what the sort of anti-evolutionists say, say, how do you explain the, the functioning of the eye? Right, that's the classic thing. Like two thousand things are happening in the eye that make you be able to see. That happened as a result of a series of genetic, uh, you know, uh, evolutionary accidents. How is that possible? And then Abe, as you point out, uh, quantum physics, which reveals, uh, which, you know, seems ever more like we have evidence for it, which is, which is indistinguishable both from from magic and the idea that there are altered alternate states of being and alternate universes, which itself you may think violates, maybe it violates the way the Bible depicts the world, the way the you know Hebrew and Christian Bible depict existence, but may in fact be the proof of it. I mean, you know, to me, uh, you know, the Higgs boson sort of uh, pales in comparison to discoveries that were made at the start of the 20th century, which I think are, you know, which are um, the, Einstein's uh, 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 general and special theories of relativity and quantum mechanics, which really um, kind of like pull the rug out from under us in terms of understanding what the world is like. The idea that quantum mechanics in particular, that if you, you know, if depending on whether there's someone there to observe matter itself, uh, matter may only be acting as a as a predict a, a wave of a, 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 a predictable uh, a wave that's so, only that can only be predicted and the not fact that down. it's so hard to put this in language is itself well, indicative of how difficult these ideas are. Uh, well, I only lost the word a probability wave was no, the word I was yeah. looking for, but but. But even that, you know, is um, really undermines our sense of reality. But yet, much like the the UFO report and the Higgs boson, there is there is an ability for human beings to sort of look at this and then go, okay, well, that's fascinating. What what's for lunch? Like nothing nothing ultimately rocks our sense of um, stability, or or if, or maybe it does, and maybe maybe. You know the insanity of the 20th century, as people often refer to, is is you know some sort of result of that. But 
I, I just think we 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 find ourselves if if we if we think about how the world, uh, you know, since the sort of rise of the dominance of science fiction, uh, you know, moving from a kind of uh, stepchild of literature and imaginative literature and movies to sort of the center of it has come to sort of dominate the way people think about the universe. Um, so, you know, uh, there's something very pagan. That's the weird part about all this is, is we have this immensely long tradition that can explain, you know, it's like that, that can, because it admits of that things that there are more of in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in our philosophy, um, that can explain this. And we, we like this weird explanation that invokes other kinds of gods that we claim aren't gods because they supposedly function according to natural rules that tie them down too. Um, but in the end, you know, if you actually are a kind of like uh, evolution uh, fundamentalist, uh, you're just saying that the process of evolution itself is God. I mean, you know, it's it, in an odd way, there's no, there's no difference between the notion that somehow uh, there was this thing, there was nothing, and then things started like combining and recombining, and then yada, 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 100 years later, there are 8 billion people on Earth and, you know, 250 zillion species of uh, distinct species of animal. Uh, and that's all happens through some natural process. Well, so that's just pagan. That's just God without God. That just means you're 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 but, the inexplicable. You're just saying something is explicable that remains inexplicable. Right. But that I mean. But we but we explain it to ourselves through things like science fiction, right? So through through there are lots of ways to try to explain. There's that what, Ray Bradbury had that great uh, statement like we're an impossibility in an impossible universe. Like that sounds kind of cheesy, but actually it gets at something, which is here's one way of trying to understand as human beings embodied human beings, something that doesn't actually, something we can't physically experience, but know to be a possibility. I don't know. I think it's, I, I'm still more optimistic. And I actually think science fiction in part is a coping mechanism for our inability of our <laughs> brains for most of us to actually process what it would be. Or an indication of our desire to process and to find answers. The pre-modern notion that we should be comfortable with discomfort, that we should accept that which we don't know as being unknowable is something that the human mind rebels against as evidenced by the entirety of human history. It's not something that is incompatible with the human condition, much to the chagrin, by the way, of the traditionalists in our tribe who, who demand that we embrace pre-modern thinking and accept the inexplicable and unknowable as unknowable and divine and just live with it. But you can have both, right? That's 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 the. Of course, point. you can. That's what modern science is. Modern science doesn't. That's why. That's why I take a little bit of issue with the notion here that the people who attribute natural phenomena that we can explain through scientific achievement and advancement, like the the notion that a, a particle exists only when you're observing it and not when you're not, um, that that's the sort of thing that is explicable in science and is indistinguishable from um, a higher religious faith. 
that's the sort of thing that those two things are compatible in my mind. I don't find any contradiction there. You know who would enjoy this conversation? I bet is enjoying this conversation right now as we're listening to it is our friend David Bonson, who himself is the son of a, of a very notable Christian minister. Uh, David is one of the most interesting thinkers I know on these and many other questions, but I'm not talking to you in, about him in his capacity uh, as a, a very interesting person in this regard, but you will get bits and pieces of it if you subscribe to DividendCafe.com, David's daily newsletter uh, about the financial markets and what is going on during the day. Uh, on Wall Street and in Washington and at the Fed and internationally and with inflation and, and all of that. The very fact that he is the sort of person who thinks deeply about other matters informs uh, the sophistication of his analysis on these very practical things that he does for a living as the head of his uh, $3 billion under management financial services firm uh, the Bonson Group. So DividendCafe.com, David Bonson's uh, daily newsletter, go sign up for it. Uh, you will thank me. It is the antelope, antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services and management industry. So guys, we are, we are running uh, long, but um, so we're running long, but we probably shouldn't just end there. Uh, <laughs> And I had, I had something, this is now the second time I've gone totally up in the course of the show. Um, I, uh, oh, so Surfside. So uh, the, the horrible uh, calamity uh, in Surfside. How repugnant is it that uh, the media jumped yesterday on this videotape, this, this video of an unnamed woman in a somewhere or other blaming Ron DeSantis for the Surfside collapse. Uh, the fear of Ron DeSantis in the, so I watched this all day on Twitter. There are articles, there's an article in the New York Times with three or four pa paragraphs about this woman saying Ron DeSantis isn't, isn't doing anything. Uh, and that somehow Ron DeSantis prevented the Israelis from coming in and investigating the Surfside site. Uh, this Ron DeSantis terror, particularly given the fact that this weekend that Trump came out of the came out of the woodwork again to give a big, big speech in Ohio that nobody was really paying much attention to, or chose deliberately not to pay attention to. I mean, uh, by 2023, the liberals are going to sort of declare Ron DeSantis the king of the universe who must be destroyed. I've never seen a politician go from relative obscurity to this level of, of, of fame in one state. Uh, and, and, and they're scaring the bejesus out of themselves with him. No. And, and helping him among Republicans. Yeah. I mean, if you want the, you want the ticket to the Republican nomination, it's to annoy liberals. Yeah. You know, anyway, all the surveys we see of what Republican voters want, the idea of a, a fighter, is uh, at the top of the list. And one of the things that has propelled DeSantis to the top tier of presidential contenders is his kind of um, fighting spirit. He's combative toward the media. He's combative toward uh, liberal elites. Um, he seems in charge. And uh, this terrifies uh, Democrats uh, to no end. I do think though, um, 
uh, I know I also saw a story that somehow he, you know, accusing him of ignoring a FEMA war or delaying FEMA. That was the thing, you know, FEMA didn't get there right, right away. And they try to blame DeSantis. Look, you know, crises are, um, are pivotal to a, to a politician's rise. And at the outset, if you recall of COVID, it didn't look like corona, uh, coronavirus was going to be a net positive for Ron DeSantis's um, political career. It turned out as the, vi- as the pandemic developed and all the kind of secondary effects of it, uh, he, that he handled it very well, extremely well, and much, much better than the uh, lionized Andrew Cuomo. Something like this, you know, you do want to be visible. You do want to make sure that you are not only competent in dealing with the catastrophe, but also compassionate uh, toward the survivors. And I've been trying to, to look at a little bit of Florida media to see um, how he's doing. Certainly his Twitter feed, he's, uh, he's saying all the right things. But um, there's no question that uh, the level of scrutiny placed on him now is of a higher degree um, than I think any other uh, Republican uh, official uh, nationwide. I mean, he reminds me, um, the, the, the person, the politician he most reminds me of at this moment is Chris Christie, uh, you know, who had the surge in, uh, you know, pretty much two years after he became governor of New Jersey in 2009, uh, by doing much the same thing that he, he, he canceled a multi-billion dollar transit project on the grounds that New Jersey was going to be held responsible for over cost overruns that he didn't, which actually may have been a huge mistake, but nonetheless looked like an amazing act of, you know, sort of leadership in the face of the New York Times editorial page and all of this. And he was sort of charging along and booming and going, going, going along. And then in his crisis, which was Hurricane Sandy, he then looked like he was a craven. He was so interested in being Mr. Bipartisan that he hugged, you know, he like, he was worshipful toward Obama when Obama came to New Jersey to survey uh, the damage um, and, and and harmed his own standing with Republicans on the grounds that it was like a week before the election and he was doing things that were gonna help Obama and hurt Romney. Um, and so, you know, DeSantis, I think, knows this very consciously and is and is using the Christie example of how to make yourself a superstar in the party while doing very consciously things to avoid being Christie, like not going to bipartisan, not yeah. not playing that card. Well, I don't you, know, know. you know, Christie was always beating up on his own constituents. Remember a lot of those images from and video of the town halls where someone would insult him and Christie would insult yeah. him right back or a teacher would get up and say, how dare you cut my pension? And he goes, well, I'll tell you why I'm cutting your pension yeah. because you're sucking off the public, you yeah. know, uh, fisc, right? Um, so the DeSantis doesn't do that. He yeah. targets the media. I haven't, I don't really see him going after his own constituents, but what he does do is he goes after the most reviled group in the eyes of Republicans, and that is the media, and he does it very effectively. And he's also, unlike Christie too, who is, and it just shows you how the Republican party has changed. Christie was all about the budget, taxes, spending, pensions, right? And that was Scott Walker helping Scott Walker in Wisconsin as well. What is DeSantis? Culture, elites, restrictions, um, that so he's he's pursuing that path, and I think I think doing it very well. I think a signal moment in the in the development of the Republican Party happened 
I think it was last week, right, where the Western Conservative Conference held their straw poll and DeSantis beat Trump. Trump. Yeah. And that's just one straw poll. But to mm -hmm. me, that just kind of like it's a crack in the ice. Well, and there's an but, yeah. there's an echelon po poll that came out. They did one in October, and where where like thirty percent of people considered themselves supporters of, of the Republican Party, and the rest supported Trump. And now that's shifting. Now fifty three percent of Republican voters consider themselves a supporter of the party, not of Donald Trump per se. All of which but, foreshadows a conflict that he cannot avoid forever. Who? He will one point have to prosecute Trump, that Trump conflict, it, or it will be upon him. Right, or but is interested I will, in him. But one thing that is common to Christie and Walker and DeSantis is that DeSantis is managerially strong. He appears to be managerially strong. It's not just that he's a culture warrior, that if he were, he could be, that would mean that he was at the state level, Josh Hawley or, or Ted Cruz. But it is, but he has in inside Florida, he is considered a good steward of the state's budget, finances, public yeah. responsibilities and public obligations. And that was the surprise, because if you remember, as, as we talked about, he ran commercials in 2018 trying to secure the Republican nomination and the, and the, and the governorship that were about Trump that had a Stalinist, you know, like worshipful socialist realism quality to them. It was like he had in, imbibed the message that, uh, you know, if you were going to go in for Trump, you went all in. Like you were like, you know, basically, you know, uh, falling to your knees in prostration before the Godhead. And then he came in as governor and suddenly he was like an old timey, managerial governor worried about the Everglades, you know, trying to figure out bipartisan deals on the Everglades and certain things about schooling and how to do thing. You know, it, it's just interesting and in that Democrats in the state liked him too. Uh, I mean, I don't know where that polling is now, but in 2020, you know, he had very high numbers among Democrats before COVID. Uh, when Democrats in the state also drank the, you know, anti-DeSantis Kool-Aid until it turned out that basically he had made the right call and others seem to have made made the wrong call. But Noah, you're right that we are facing that, you know, at some point you're going to have to say you need to vote for me and not for Trump if you're going to run against Trump. If you're going to be the new leader of the party, you have to say Trump is the past and I'm the future, and you're going to have to explain why. And Trump, of course, isn't going to allow that uh, to happen. So, but he's, he's so you know, it is smart to put out that conflict <clears throat> until the point that you have enough, you've marshaled all the forces that you can in your own defense. And that time is not now, but it will be soon. Time is Trump's enemy. I think that's clear. I mean, the, the, the farther we move from inauguration, um, the, the less uh, relevant Trump seems. Part of it is the conspiracy of silence you're talking about. Part of it is the deplatforming. Um, but, but of course, part of it is also Trump's own uh, self-destructive tendencies. Um, you know, um, he's not doing anything uh, that you would think he would have to do in order to maintain himself as the leader of the party uh, for 2024. What would you say? What would you say those things would be that he is not doing? Well, one, you have to be a unifying force in the party. You'd have to be the, You have to. You'd have to have a future orientation. 
rather than saying that the 2020 election is the most important issue today. Uh, but no, it's not. It's like we had the election. OK, uh, you lost. Um, uh, you know, and so you'd have to be less interested in in vengeance, which is what he is. He is out for vengeance. That's all he wants. It's all he wants. And We're going so long, but you, you really have to talk about this uh the event that he held on Saturday, which was so vengeance oriented that right. it was insular to the point of being irrelevant. And I think that's what, I think that's what the uh, phenomenon we're witnessing is that it's become, if, if he focuses more, you ask what he needs to do. If he's focusing continually on the core of the core, the most passionate Trump supporters who are going to be going to the rallies whenever he holds them and have gone, you know, they're like grateful dead, uh, fans, they go to multiple rallies, right? That's a thing. That's okay, that's hobby. an insult to Grateful Dead fans, but God, oh, well, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I'm fine with the dead, but the um, it just becomes divorced from actual politics as it's happening today. I mean, that's the problem. And there are obviously the externally con um, external constraints imposed by the tech companies, but he could have worked around them. I mean, I, I he's you know, it's just instead he's issuing these six statements a day that run five paragraphs long and it's all capital letters and exclamation points. And I, you know, I don't even have the time to read them and I, I'm supposed to. I mean, he is talking about critical race theory. Yeah. Well, and someone is and talking about critical words. race theory no, with but his byline. No, well, there was that. We already talked about that op-ed, but I mean, he is talking about it like he talked about it in the in the speech. You know, this is destroying our country, and I would have fired, um, you know, the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff for talking that way about you know about white people, whatever. He does he does talk about the issues of the moment. It's just that when he gets rolling, right, when the fuse is really lit and the fire comes on behind his eyes. It's like this anecdote in John Carl's piece uh, in the Atlantic about uh, uh, Attorney General Bill Barr uh, talking to him after the election, right? Where he, Barr says, he says, why could you, why did you do this to me? Why did you make, you know, Trump says, why did you do it? Why did you make this announcement that, you know, that the election looks like, you know, it's, it's over when we, you know, we lost or we didn't. And, and Barr said, because it's, it's true, like we looked into it. And it's true. And then Trump says, you just hate Trump, <laughs> right? You want to F Trump of himself. The whole point here is that he, you know, that's the only thing that really motivates him. Um, but I mean, you might be right. The time, time is his enemy. Um, and Right now, and obviously you don't know, but I mean, right now, DeSantis is the only Republican politician who has figured out how to combine uh, the image of being a competent person who is getting things done, which of course was key to Trump's appeal. And is even key to Trump's appeal among the people who still support him, right? Which is, he gave us the best economy in the world as president, and then this COVID thing happened. But if that hadn't happened, he would have, there is this delusion. I hear it from everybody saying, look, if COVID hadn't happened, Trump would have won the election in November. And I, I see absolutely, you know, in fact, the evidence does not suggest that that's true. I mean, it may, may have been, you know, but I'm just saying like that that's part of it. With with all the and so DeSantis has the competence and the 
and the sort of uh, guy that the that the media hate thing uh, going. So Trump, I guess, under those circumstances, is going to have to reestablish the competence argument, right? Doesn't he have to say, "I'm going to go back and fix what Biden broke"? I mean, that's ultimately got to be the message, right? It's not just re reestablish me because what happened was unfair. He's got to say, I alone can fix it again. Save America. Those are the, you know, that's yeah. the new rally. It's not right. MAGA, it's save America. So Trump would, uh, you know, he'll win a third time, as he said at the rally, uh, to save America from all the things that Biden and uh, Harris have done. Maybe it could work. I just, um, I, I just, once you kind of open up the possibility that there's an alternative that isn't Trump, um, I think many Republicans would be open to it. In fact, the AP write-up of the rally quoted an attendee who's, who was there and likes Trump and everything, but basically said, you know, I kind of like this DeSantis guy too. He, maybe he's different. And, you know, to, to me, if you think about the Trump show, very few shows last more than eight seasons. You know, <laughs> he came down in 2015. Mm -hmm. This is six, season six, you know, and by the time the, the primary starts in earnest, there'll be season eight. I think just people want the new thing. And uh, at the moment, at the moment, which is still so early, yeah. DeSantis is the new thing. Six seasons also, in the movie. Also, you, you can't don't have yeah, the spin-off yeah. movie. Yeah, that's, the, also, that's what we're know, in now. Can you like Fish and The Grateful Dead? Like, that's my question. It doesn't like, make you a good person. I'm not saying, I'm not talking about, I'm just saying, but like, can you move on? Can you say, you know what? I think I like fish a little more than the Grateful Dead. If someone comes on as the, co you know, sort of like as the copycat successor band and you have, but you have a choice. They're playing on the same night in the same arena. They're very different, John. You're just talking about the jam band genre. You can like fish. You can like Grateful Dead. You can like Government Mule. You can like Widespread Panic. They're all very different noodling bands who noodle distinctly. Yes, well, I mean, and they all they have are. to fill up like the us. same the what same circuit <laughs> of jam what band they're... of, you know, playing around for three days in a row in the yard. Now that you can smoke pot everywhere, you don't have to go to one of these concerts anymore. People went to them because 20,000 people were smoking weed at the same time. So you they couldn't arrest everybody. But now just come to come to Midtown Manhattan, man. It's like it's like a fish concert here. I it's it's horrible. It's horrible. Like it's like you think skunks have been let loose in 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 Midtown Manhattan. Anyway, we've now gone on for about three. It, it, this is now like the length of a Joe Rogan podcast, and of course, he and Elon. Musk smoked dope on the Joe Rogan podcast. We have not smoked dope, so we're just being... You know, just, just, despite our content today. Yes, despite, yeah. that's right. It only sounded like we were high. Yes. yes, yes. I think if we'd been high, we might have been more coherent <laughs> actually talking about talking about the uh, the alien thing. But anyway, Matt Condetti, thanks for joining us as ever. Go to commentarymagazine.com and read his piece, Mansion Goes Rogue, as well as the rest of the July-August issue. We'll be back with you tomorrow. For Abe, Christina, Noah, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.